everyone, and welcome to the Why Climate Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Holloway, and I first want to say a thank you to the New Brunswick Lung Association, who has helped make this podcast possible. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Mehta from Thompson University, and I would like to formally welcome again for taking his time to come on the podcast and answer some questions. Thank you, Dr. Mehta. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. And you actually win the award for being our guest with the furthest distance between us. So far, we had uh, Alberta, but you uh, being in British Columbia, take that achievement today. So you now have the golden crown. <laughs> so we're going to jump right into it. So who are you and what do you do? So I'm a professor of uh, in, in a new department at Thompson Rivers University called the Department of Environment, Culture and Society. It's an amalgamation of our geography and environmental studies program with our sociology and anthropology program. And what we've done is we've created a program that allows us to really be catalytic to explore lots of emerging issues, including things like air pollution. So throughout my career of close to 30 years as a university professor, I focused primarily on risk issues. So I started off looking at nuclear power plant safety. I moved into blood safety. I've looked at endocrine modulating chemicals from plastics and their impacts on the reproductive system. And of course, air pollution, which I've been looking at for about a decade. That, that, those are some big, heavy topics to dive into with it have very, you know, sort of polarizing ends to them as well. As we move forward through sort of the new, I was like calling it the third generation of environmental awareness who had sort of the early 60s, 70s into the 80s. And now again, with climate change being sort of slowly front and center again. So that kind of leads us into the sort of the next question is what started you on this journey that led you to become an educator with a focus on environment, culture and society at Thompson River University? Well, you know, like a lot of uh, professors, we, we get into this work accidentally. Nobody really wakes up and says that's what they want to do. We, we all have these more traditional sort of pathways in mind. For me, you know, I, I was pretty confident that I was going into medicine, which is sort of a history thing in my family, my father and others. But, you know, as I went through university and I moved from various degrees, I did an undergrad in psychology, I uh, did a master's in environmental studies, PhD in sociology, postdoctoral training, which is like a second PhD in environmental policy. I started to realize that the connections between human health and the environment were a lot more intimate than most people recognize. And if we ignore one side of that equation, we, we're really not fighting the battle very well. So that's why I've spent most of my career looking at these kinds of issues, trying to change policy, trying to change people's attitudes, which is the biggest barrier, by the way, and also trying to really push forward things like citizen science, which are really valuable tools for collecting data and for providing inputs for making decisions. Yeah, and it's so true. I've spent the better part of the last decade of my career with a focus on sort of the determinants of health, which are you said sort of big wheel of like, really how healthy you are going to be is only coming from that 10% of it is that sort of medical system that we do prize so heavily. The rest of it is a lot of other factors that really end up in environment being one of the bigger ones is that sort of how you are going to live healthy through your life. And that sort of spawns into them. What are some of the biggest challenges you think facing public health in Canada in relation to climate change? And as we've seen over sort of the last four years and in some ways with people being locked down with COVID, it's becoming more front and center, especially for the younger generations, as it seems to be increasing at an infinitely faster rate than we ever predicted. Yeah, it's been said that climate change is the existential moment of our, our time in history, where the threats are multi-level. Um, of course, we're not all experiencing them the same way at the same time, vulnerability, resilience, your socioeconomic status, 
all mm-hmm. kinds of factors can influence how, how you respond and how you are affected by climate change. I think the biggest challenge is um, the language as well as how that affects our understanding of this big global issue. In the past, you know, not too long ago, so for example, in the 60s and 70s, the focus was on things like air pollution and ozone depletion. And we progressively moved towards climate change, which is more of a, an outcome of these things. Uh, it, it's the result of air pollution, actually. We, we tend to forget that, that um, all greenhouse gas emissions on planet Earth, with the exception of some naturally occurring ones, which are a small fraction of the problem, are generated by humans that you know, result in air pollution that creates all of these problems. So by, by looking at the outcome, the cancer, so to speak, rather than the things that cause it, we have, I think, got ourselves into some real turmoil and some real challenges. And a lot of people, when it comes to air pollution, have a hard time seeing their own personal role in this whole picture as well. We, we tend to focus on things like industry. We may look at uh, transportation to a certain extent. Uh, and of course, we play a role in that. But we ignore a lot of the other things that generate really powerful greenhouse gas pollutants, short-lived ones like black carbon, PM 2.5, as we commonly know it, from just everyday activities like burning wood in the chimney or a bonfire or anything like that. So it's really complicated. I have to say, Andrew, that um, air pollution has been the most difficult part of my academic journey to begin with. When I um, looked into nuclear power plant safety, of course, there were challenges. And there were a lot of people that were very pro-nuclear. Um, most people were pretty receptive to the message. They were, you know, open to the idea that there could be alternatives, that there were problems with that mode of generating electricity. Mm-hmm. But with air pollution, there are massive blinders in place, and people define them as cultural, or they, their habits, or their, um, they're just cognitive dissonance things that are happening where we're unwilling or unable to see what's happening. And, and that is the biggest issue. And in fact, very quick to blame the messenger or shoot the messenger, as we used to say as well. Yep. So this is the most difficult part of my academic journey for sure. Oh, yeah. And as my wife has a joke about me that says I'm basically allergic to Christmas. I'm as a child, I was deathly allergic to wood smoke to the point when as a small kid, I actually ended up in, in Halifax. We have the IWK, which is sort of a world renowned children's hospital. And I was a boy in the bubble because literally my lungs were just imploding from wood smoke. But you talk about ever banning wood smoke or reduction of wood smoke. It, you literally have, as you say, sort of the, the shotguns are pointed at you at the doorstep because people are like, no, no, that's nothing. Whereas we're much more open for other allergens or health concerns to easily say, yes, we'll figure out a way around that. Like, you know, I work in a hospital. We sort of have our office space in there. And so no sense, St. Louis deal and all those things. Easy. We can do that overnight. But you talk about these, as you say, culturally ingrained things, having a bonfire, having a wood smoke burn, you know, in the wintertime, it's like, no, we can't, no one's willing to tackle that mountain. And it must be incredibly challenging for you. It, it is. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm uh, one of a handful of academics that actually focus on this topic. And um, it, it became such an interesting sort of intellectual challenge too, which led ultimately to the creation of this amazing citizen science project that I started up in British Columbia, where we deployed these very low cost sensors called Purple Air. These are, you know, they're very low cost, $300 range, internet of things, Wi-Fi connected, in other words, sensors that are quite accurate that you can place anywhere. 
and they provide real-time data of air pollution, PM 2.5 levels in particular, but they measure other things if you want them to, and pop that up on a map. So what I did about 10 years ago in British Columbia, because nobody was listening to the messaging about air pollution and in particular PM 2.5 from anthropogenic sources, is I started to set these networks up mostly in rural communities. I found that rural communities were underserviced with respect to air quality monitoring and public health to begin with. People often don't have doctors in those communities either. And there are a lot of older people living in those communities. And there's also a lot of denial of the, uh, the issue. So set up these sensors in these rural communities all across British Columbia and then ultimately into the urban communities. And it was mind boggling. It was startling to see that you know, just lighting up a wood stove in your neighborhood could pollute kilometers away. And of course, if you've got many people doing this, you end up with levels that get higher than what you'd see on a really bad pollution day in Beijing, China. Yep. And that was continuous for six, eight, nine months of the year, depending on where you were. And it, people were completely oblivious to this until we started to reveal it. Yeah. And we have, we're doing a similar program here with the Lung Association using two point, uh, PM 2.5 monitors, but our focus right now is on Indigenous communities. So again, uh, typically an underserved group, and we're setting it up around what we call EEC, so Early edu Childhood Education Centers. So we're going to be going in starting this fall and actually putting the PM 2.5 sensors up in these communities. So the staff can actually use them as a tool to gauge the risk for the young children who already have elevated risks of asthma and already have other health concerns that at a higher rate than sort of the non-Indigenous population. And we're really hoping to help sort of give them the data as well so they can then have those hard conversations with the federal government around what, you know, other resources need to bring to bear to sort of look to prevent or sort of mitigate some of the health concerns that are helping or occurring in their communities around New Brunswick. And then, like you say, it's part of that sort of citizen science like we we've always been told you have to advocate for your own health a little bit of it you have to advocate for the climate as well because you can't outrun a bad diet and if the planet's sick it's gonna come down on you too as well yeah exactly excellent yeah. Project, by the way. thank you um i'll send you some stuff when we finish it up so that kind of lens we uh sort of talked around the other questions but what do you see the role of citizen scientists in advocating for clean air in canada well, you know, from my experience, uh, government has been dropping the ball a lot, both federally and provincially, when it comes to air quality monitoring. Uh, there are a lot of cities in British Columbia, for instance, that only have one air pollution station in the entire city, typically nowhere near a source of pollution, uh, intentionally, mm -hmm. by the way. And um, they, they often tend to, uh, you know, although they collect a lot more than PM 2.5 data, they'll collect ozone levels and things like that. They tend to average this out over the hour or the day in some cases, not real time in other words. And they don't have that granularity that the citizen science low cost sensor networks have to show you what's happening in real time, but also in neighborhoods. And what's really important, what I've learned a lot from the citizen science work on air pollution is that there's no one airshed. There's no such thing as one airshed. A community is composed of hundreds, if not thousands of micro airsheds and they can vary substantially, mostly based on what people are doing around their own home. So for instance, again, if you have a bonfire, if you're burning wood in a wood stove, or even if you're using a wood smoker for cooking or anything like that, you and your neighbors could be subjected to air pollution levels that are completely unrecognized 
by these centralized air pollution stations that are found in a lot of communities or cities. And most rural communities don't have anything to begin with. So really powerful tools. Um, they can be a, a tool for change. Although I have to tell you that having done citizen science, not only on air pollution, but also on kelp restoration, where I started and ran an organization called Help the Kelp on the coast, where we monitored and rebuilt kelp beds, um, there are lots of challenges with citizen science. I mean, there are lots of issues with uh, questions about who owns the data, what can be done with that data, as well as uh, continuity. And when a person that leads an organization moves on, retires, dies, whatever it happens to be, um, often those projects fall apart. So there needs to be support from some other organization like a long association or something like that, especially with air pollution work to keep all of that together. Yeah, and that's always is the challenge, especially in that sort of NGO world where you have a staff member or a manager or a board that's intensely passionate about something and they're doing great things. But when, as you say, it dissolves, new staff move on for no intentional reason, it's that loss and it, it's hard to find that same group to carry the torch because they could be interested in another environmental reason or another aspect of health. And it's that, as you say, continuity is the challenge for any of these organizations. And you see it even at the federal level where you have, you know, some passionate staff members there and the moment they move on to a different department or everything, and the person who fills it may not see it in the same view or lens as they did. And it's, it's another, it's another hill to sort of challenge themselves. Our goal with ours is to really hope that they we're not holding the data to ourselves. We're just going to sort of keep it in one spot that they will forever have access to it. And they can have those hard conversations when they can say like, listen, when the pulp mills upriver start burning, we see it, right? And because we're in a low valley on a river, we're taking on more of it. And we really want them to be able to have those conversations and be their own voice, but with data that, you know, they is seen as in the same light at a provincial level and a federal level. It's not sort of made up or I feel it's actual concrete data that people who who look into it and write policy, pay attention to. Yeah, it's an interesting question you, you sort of um, got me thinking about as well, having to do with uh, how do we use this data, especially when we have multiple sources of air pollution. So, yep. the, 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 you know, the, the pulp and paper operations, thumbnails and things like that, excellent example. A lot of them also burn wood, of course, for electricity. They may feed that back to the grid. I know that's commonly done across the country. So, you know, if you've got a community that's a resource community that already has somewhat iffy, questionable air quality, and you start to layer on top of it other sources of pollution, including domestic sources of pollution, it's not one or the other. It's not one trumps the other. It's combinatorial. And yeah. the effects are also combinatorial because, you know, when you think about especially vulnerable people, not just children, but anybody over 50 is considered vulnerable in many respects as well. We know that exposure to PM 2.5 is very closely linked to things like heart disease and lung disease. What a lot of people don't recognize is that there are other things that are associated with it as well, including hearing loss, eye damage, kidney problems, bladder cancers, lots of other things are implicated in this, this whole picture. So, uh, and, and there also are very short-term acute responses too. We saw a lot of that in British Columbia starting in 2017 when we had wildfires that were going on for months. Yep. And these wildfires were creating PM 2.5 levels that were two to three times the level that you would see when Beijing again would you know, uh, issue a red alert day. And nobody was responding to them here. I felt like I was the only one yelling in the wind to people through the media, 
Protect yourselves, protect your children, get a HEPA filter, wear a mask, don't go for a jog when you've yep. got 500 micrograms per cubic meter pollution out there and the World Health Organization stay, says stay below 10. And nobody was communicating that. So it was a very frustrating experience. And as I said, the blind spots are, are quite evident. I have a really clear memory. I'm gonna date myself a little bit. Um, I was finishing, I wanna say it was grade two. And it was when back in the early, early nineties, Quebec had their massive wildfires that basically swallowed the country alive. I remember getting my report card and biking home and the sky was black with a red line through it in Nova Scotia. I grew up in Dartmouth. And to this day, I, it sticks out like a sore thumb, like that sort of memory of biking home in darkness on a, a June day, essentially. And even when you guys had your wildfires, we saw the spikes out here. Like we saw the effect all the way across the side, other side of the country. And it's this funny thing, and I, I'm not a huge fan of TikTok, but there's a TikTok trend right now where people are like, people don't understand Canada, right? And for a lot of people, we forget how big this country actually is to have pollution coming from the other side and affecting one coast to the other is literally like going from London, England, almost to the border of Russia. It is an incalculable amount of distance. And it just shows how, you know, our health is predicated on the environment, but impacts can come from many, as you said, multiple sources. Yeah, and, and a lot of people also had some very acute responses to those wildfires in the same way that they do to sitting around a bonfire. Strokes, for instance, are the quintessential outcome of exposure to short-term acute high levels of PM 2.5. And I know people that were otherwise healthy in their 50s and 60s who had strokes because they didn't heed the advice. They went for walks or runs or hikes during wildfire events. That's how serious this is. Oh, it's very serious. So we've kind of been into the dark now. What gives you hope for the future as we are starting to see the impacts of climate change on our overall health? Or do you see anything rosy down the pathway? Or is this going to be a probably harder struggle than we're predicting even now? Well, it's it's hard to, it's hard to be um, an optimist in the environmental field, for mm. sure. Because if you've been in it as long as I have, you have, you know, seen a lot of new material come forward, a lot of new data and studies. You've seen governments put forward policies, all to, to see them clawed back or disappear and progress lost. That is, that is the hardest thing, I think, for sure. But I am um, confident that some, some people, <laughs> I don't know what percent, but some people will wake up when they start to realize what's happening and they will start to lead the charge, not only politically, but also, you know, by adopting themselves and becoming earlier adopters of EV technology. We've seen that electric vehicles, more solar energy. We need to change our diet. There's no question about that, that after uh, transportation, our ecological footprint from diet is massive. It's almost the same as our transportation footprint. So people beef is, are beef is a heavy polluter and we're not yeah. allowed to talk about that part out loud. <laughs> yeah, we're, well, I do. And we're, oh, we're, I know. I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> for a meat-based diet, not just beef, but all meat-based yeah. diet. And, you know, all these things are connected. And I think I, I do see people waking up to this to a certain extent. Although the, the downside of this, the challenging side for this, I see it firsthand as a professor who teaches young people too. And it was just sort of, I was reminded of it this morning when I came across this uh, Gallup poll in the United States. Sure, it's the US, but I'm sure it's somewhat similar to what we have here, where they 
they assessed how many people between the ages of 19 and 29, male and female, define themselves as either liberal or conservative. And I was shocked to see that about 25% of young men between 19 and 29 define themselves as liberal, 75% conservative. Mm -hmm. Whereas for women, young women, it was 50% almost. And that had diverged quite a bit from the 80s when they first started to ask and look at these questions where they were almost equal at about a third being liberally minded. So we've seen this massive polarization of the sexes, which of course makes it really hard for young men to move down this road to look for professions that you know sort of represent what the Buddhists might call um, good livelihoods or right living. We're, we're still trapped in this cycle of natural resource extraction, damage to nature, and everything else. And this is where it's really challenging because we have the technology today to make significant inroads. We can reverse climate change. We can reverse air pollution. We can reduce the burden of disease. You know, there's no reason why almost 50% of us have to develop cancer at some point in our life nowadays. Yep. But without that change in mindset, that psychological shift, that cultural shift, we're in big trouble. Yeah, it is. It is a daunting task. And I, I went to, I did my undergrad at, at Dalhousie. And I remember one of my best friends at the time, he was going into chemical engineering and we still joke about it to this day, but Ian would be like, your net, like gas is too cheap. Admittedly, this was like 2001 when we went to university together. And I was like, ah, it's going to shift sometime. And he, Ian's still working for Shell and he's doing well, but he's working for Shell, right? And it's still that very much not only being a male who's sort of banging the environmental drum, but that sort of like, oh, you're just... X and Y, and you're like, no, I'm involved in public health. Like, this isn't necessarily just an environmental thing. It's a public health thing that has one of the outcomes being the environment, the same way you have dietitians dealing with nutrition and what you're putting into your body. This is a facet of it. It's just that it's still seen as, in many ways, I would say, something out of the 60s or 70s. Like, I should be wearing, you know, a, a peace sign around. It's not that at all. It's data driven science about your health, but it's, convincing people that it is that is almost an argument unto itself as well yeah, yeah i agree yeah so that leads into sort of our final two questions i always like to ask this one what is one question you wished i asked during this interview that i didn't and how would you respond well i suppose i i'd like to explore a little bit the, the issue of my personal experience with uh, with the, the, the opposition to the work that i do Sure. Um, and it probably ties into your next question about where I would like to live. <laughs> <laughs> so about 15 years ago, my wife and I uh, decided that we would start building our retirement home uh, early so we could hopefully pay it off before we retired. So yeah. we bought a little piece of land in a rural community on an island, one of the Gulf Islands off Vancouver Island, an island called Gabriola Island. Gabriola is just near Nanaimo. It's an island of about 4,000 people. We were lucky enough to get this beautiful um, property just across the street from the ocean. And we built our dream house there. A lot of sweat equity, we designed it, we built a lot of it ourselves. It was a modern home that's heated with uh, heat pumps. It um, had solar on the roof, a substantial solar array. It had an EV charging station. It, the utility bills were almost nothing to operate. And it was, um, you know, over time, it became a very um, expensive neighborhood. Mm -hmm. This isn't a poor community by any means. 
Yet as people began to move there and to develop the land, they all installed wood stoves. And when I first got there, I didn't really think anything about that. Um, I didn't have a, you know, any health issues per se. I wasn't looking at air pollution at that time. And my wife who had asthma as a child started to develop that asthma again and came back with a vengeance. I started to develop lung problems and other health problems as well over the years. I was a scuba diver, a scuba instructor. I used to spend a lot of time doing marine ecosystem research and restoration, as I alluded to, and I wasn't able to. Mm. And it was 100% because of the wood smoke. So that's where I started my journey, fighting my own community, which was a losing battle. Nobody yeah. wanted to change. And uh, even with the purple air sensors, with lobbying to get incentives for heat pumps and everything else, people would still be addicted to this burning of wood. In fact, anytime I questioned it, it was like questioning the God of smoke and fire. It was yeah. that fundamental, it was that rooted in the culture there, even though people weren't from there. They just assumed that was part of the rural existence. And it wasn't necessarily, but that's how they conceived it. So last year we were forced to sell our little piece of paradise because of health reasons. And I've given up pretty much on that community and that area for that kind of work because it's so entrenched and we had our house vandalized several times, our car vandalized, death threats repeatedly trying to change opinions about wood smoke. So it is, as I said earlier, the most difficult journey that I've ever been on in my academic career. I know now why most academics won't even go near it and why most environmental groups, the mainstream environmental groups won't touch it. I also have a feeling why other lung associations across Canada won't even go near this either. And um, one of your uh, or sister organizations, the BC Lung Association, has been very much on the fence with respect to dealing with this issue. Yeah. So it's big. And it's kind of left us struggling now about where to go to retire. We live in Cambridgestown. We love it here. Uh, ironically, even with the town with a paper mill and wildfires pretty much every summer, the air pollution here is significantly less. The quality of life is significantly better. So that's sort of my story. Um, I know it sounds. Uh, I can personal. make my pitch for if you like the ocean where I'm from Halifax, there's oceanfront property, I would believe significantly <laughs> cheaper than BC. But I was uh, born in Halifax. <laughs> oh, were you? There yes. you go. Yeah. Yes, I, I say Halifax. I'm from Dartmouth, but everyone on the East Coast is like, oh, Dartmouth. Oh, no. And I'm like, it's the suburb yeah. of Halifax. So. Right. I've been to yeah. New Brunswick a few times. I was actually interviewed for a job at UNB about 20 oh, years. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I've been to almost. I've been to every province in Canada. I've lived in five. Yeah. Uh, and, wow. you know, ultimately I'm, I'm going to stay here and maybe just travel to places where I'm get, when I'm retired. And that is like your story is the exemplification of why it is so challenging to talk about air pollution, but then even more granular wood smoke. Like I'm recording this in sort of my house and I can look across the street and uh, one of our, well, he's a neighbor, but I couldn't tell you, stick from a, take him from the crowd. He's probably got about 20 quarts ready to go for his wood smoke already, right? Like for, and he's just like his whole sort of outdoor out garage is just full to the brim with wood. And once winter hits, I, we live on a hill. So I just literally have to walk the other way up the hill because I can't go down there on bad sort of what I call like low cloud days, right? Where it gets nice and trapped in here. Mm -hmm. And we, while not necessarily wood smoke, we have the similar or adjacent thing with St. John. The province is so intertwined with the Irvings that we can't, even though 
rates of cancer are through the roof in St. John, New Brunswick, like nationally triple what they should ever be because it's sort of the sacred cow. You cannot talk about it. Like we know it's bad. No government will touch it because you ha- you hit up against that wall of it's a good paying job in a uh, economically depressed area. So people's livelihoods depend on it. And it's seen as like change will kill the jobs. And they yeah. almost associate the same as if you change it or do anything to what happened with Newfoundland and the fisheries, it'll just be a collapse and another collapse. And they, it's, it's going up against so many things that people are almost afraid of dealing with because the, the, the chance of dangerous in their mind so high, whether it's there or not is a separate issue, but in their minds, it is, this will destroy everything, even though it's literally killing them. And it is such a hard challenge to change. Yeah. And what you're sort of also suggesting, and a lot of people don't see this at first, is that there is a direct link between having an active and vibrant forestry sector and residential wood burning. Because yep. as they clear lots to um, harvest the good quality wood, there's lots of lower quality wood and smaller trees that are invariably cut down and used for firewood. So you, you have this double whammy. And you also have this reinforcing of all of this culture. It's not culture. It is economy masquerading as culture. And it's a particular kind of economy that ignores all of those major externalities, including health impacts. And that's what we're paying for now. That's why we're seeing our healthcare eating up more and more of our GDP. At some point, I hope people are going to wake up and say, This ain't sustainable. This is the problem. Not only are we eroding and destroying our physical environment, our atmosphere, and everything else, and biodiversity, we're also paying the price personally. So that's again brings me back to why I do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. It, I, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation because I hope for a lot of people what they take away is that it's not one thing, but it is in terms of air quality, the things you some people hold dear to their hearts can actually be harming them in ways they. Pr- I'll give some people the benefit of the doubt and say that they didn't even realize was actually impacting those people around them and wood smoke being, as I, as I alluded to earlier, I'm definitely allergic to it. Once winter hits, I'm just like, oh, well, there goes my lung capacity for the season. Like I literally go 45 minutes away to our local ski hill. I'm like, ah, oh, everything's fine. Come back home. Like I can't run any, you know, and it's trying to overcome these sort of, as you, as you mentioned, entrenched things that are a cultural thing more than anything, or, you know, an economic thing veiled as culture that we need to figure out a path forward for, because if we don't, all the hard work, it it will in the end go nowhere because our politicians won't listen to it if there's not an actual push from the public and all those other things that come to it. And most of, in the end, we all pay for the bill when, you know, people are having strokes and everything else. It's not industry who pays for that. It's we, the taxpayers. So precisely yeah no it's been an incredible talk and i really can't thank you enough for your time thank you very much and uh good luck and i hope this winter isn't too bad for you i I do recommend really good high quality HEPA filtration for your house i've got those and it makes a big difference so that you don't feel like you're suffering too much indoors indoors is pretty good in our house we have some up up in our roof and then our heat pump has a couple extra HEPA filters installed into it so we're, we're good there and outside of one window that we're replacing this fall, we're pretty airtight in this house. So it's, and our one big window, we know we have to change. It's just dollars and cents. Like everyone else, you got to pick your battles as they come. Um, Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Meta. It's been incredible. Thanks, everyone.